You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Welcome to your September bonus episode for paid subscribers. If you are already a paid subscriber to the Burnt Toast newsletter, you should have this entire episode in your podcast feed and access to the entire transcript in your inbox and also on my Substack. If you are not a paid subscriber, you're going to get the first chunk of the episode now, but to hear the whole thing or read the whole transcript, you'll need to become a paid Burnt Toast subscriber. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. Click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. So today we are trying out a new format for the podcast, which I have been super excited to experiment with for a while. I'm calling it Virginia's Office Hours. It is a chance for a Burnt Toast subscriber to come chat with me about any question they're mulling related to diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, health, etc. Any diet trend you want to rant about, you know, office hours are open. The floor is yours. Before we jump in, I do want to give you my standard disclaimer that also runs at the top of every Ask Virginia column. I am a journalist and human with a lot of informed opinions, but I am not a nutritionist, therapist, doctor, or any kind of healthcare provider. So the conversation you're about to hear, all of the advice and opinions I give are just for entertainment, information, and education purposes only. None of this is a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. The way I think of both the Ask Virginia column and what we do on the podcast with listener questions is much less, here is an expert sharing their wisdom, which I think is the model we're all really trained to expect with advice content, and that's in large part thanks to diet culture. But I think of this as much more smart people having thoughtful conversations, the same way I do and I bet you do over wine or coffee with friends or over my group text chats with my friends. And because of that, it's always kind of bothered me for a while that when I do written Q&As or even podcast Q&As, the format is so one direction. Because very often when you send in a question, I have follow-up questions. I want to know more details. I want context. And I want to know what the person submitting the question thinks instead of just sharing what I think. I want to know, is this idea I'm having maybe kind of half-baked, but going to be useful to you in some way? Or does this feel not at all applicable? Does this feel totally out of context and we need to refine? You know, I think often a big problem with trying to get advice about these topics is that people boil it down to an Instagram post, sort of little nugget of wisdom, and that just isn't applicable to all of our lives. So, A much deeper, richer, more nuanced conversation is what I am aiming for with these Office Hour episodes. I see it as a chance to have the kind of conversation we often have on the newsletter in Friday threads. But here we are conversing more directly, Zoom face to Zoom face. So today's Office Hour guest asked me to change her name to protect privacy. We are calling her Serena. And we're talking about how she can navigate some encounters with extended family members who aren't just diety and on diets. They are diet culture creators. So it's like a whole other level. It's your uncle who's really obsessed with paleo, but like if your uncle invented paleo. Her uncle did not invent paleo, just to be clear. Last thing before we dive in, this episode does contain some discussion of eating disorders, eating disorder recovery, and a family medical crisis. If any of that wouldn't be good for you to listen to, please take care of yourself. Give this one a miss. Everyone else, it's an awesome conversation, and I can't wait to hear what you think of this new format drop a comment or send an email. And if you would like to submit a question or volunteer to be an Office Hours guest, you can use the form linked in the episode description. Here's Serena. 
Hi, Serena. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Virginia. It's great to be here. This is the first, the inaugural Virginia's Office Hours, so we're figuring out the format together, and I appreciate you being game for the experiment. I would like to start by having you read us the question you sent in. Okay, great. So the question was, is, how do I maintain a relationship with or move on from my extended family members whose livelihood is rooted in wellness culture? selling quote-unquote food as medicine and weight loss as a cure for everything from heart disease to type 2 diabetes to rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. During my years following their rigid vegan slash whole food plant-based, no salt, oil, sugar, etc. diet, I developed severe anorexia from which I am just now extricating myself with lots of professional help and support of anti-diet journalism and podcasts like yours and food psych, for example. It feels awkward to be around my family now that I'm trying to follow intuitive eating instead of the whole food plant-based diet rules. They are famous, revered, and well-loved in their circles. I'm not necessarily here to bash them, though I now see their messaging as privileged, fatphobic, not at all aligned with my social justice values, and the opposite of intuitive anti-diet. So this question jumped out at me First of all, because obviously you're in a very sort of specific situation with who these folks are and the work that they do. But I think there's a lot that's relatable here. Like even if someone's cousin or grandfather or whoever isn't like the father of keto, which is not who her family member is, we're not disclosing their identity. But, you know, even if you're not related to the founder of the paleo diet or something, like you might have a relative who's a doctor or a dietitian or in health in a diety way in some other arena. And the authority that we give these folks in their professional lives can often show up in the personal interactions as well. So I just thought like, oh, I bet a lot of people can relate to what you must be feeling when you go to Thanksgiving dinner. Why don't we have you tell us a little more of your own story? Because I think that's going to be really important to how we talk about how you're navigating this. So tell us a little more about when your eating disorder started and what were some of the key ways you saw your relatives work informing your disorder? Yeah, so my mom was kind of an early vegetarian in the 70s when she was pregnant with my brother um, after me. And then my dad had a GI cancer in the mid-70s. So part of his treatment was a major operation of his whole GI tract that basically they weren't sure he was going to survive or recover from. So my family went into full-on survival mode, and a lot of that was figuring out how best to eat. And, you know, now I know it's orthorexia, and yet it came out of this real fear of my dad may not make it if we don't eat right. My extended family, about whom this question is focused, kind of started their vegan path in the mid-80s. And so that was around when my immediate family also adopted this pretty strict way of eating. But my first round of anorexia was probably my last year of high school and definitely grew out of a lot of that restriction, you know, no animal products and all of that, but pretty much recovered and found somewhat of a middle ground. But then it came roaring back in the last decade of midlife and changes with my children. And, you know, I think it's pretty common coming around again during the changes of midlife. 
So yeah, and part of what did it was being diagnosed with Lyme disease and a fairly well-meaning healthcare provider suggesting that part of my recovery could be giving up other food groups, kind of classic wellness culture around gluten and other things. And so that got me sort of back into that mode of food as medicine or rather restricting food as Mm -hmm. the only path to wellness. 2015 roll around, I was definitely deep in it. And it was only just reinforced by not my immediate family necessarily, but my extended family. So your whole relationship with food is rooted in this big trauma, right? This experience with your dad that sounds so terrifying and how that kind of informed the way your family was navigating food when you were a kid. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was five when he was sick. Yeah. So that's a lot. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was all under the guise of like, this is what we need to do to make him better. And I'm guessing less attention being paid to like, what is the toll this is taking on all of us? Oh, for sure. (laughs) No, it was all about how do we keep him alive and we'll do anything. Which like, of course you would, but also you're five and you're having to eat in this really difficult way. And, you know, were you aware as a kid that your family ate differently from other families? Oh, yes. And it was always kind of a, we're better, we're superior, we're righteous, we're healthy, Mm -hmm, you know, we're mm -hmm. eating clean. And so there was always kind of a comfort there to me, not a shame or a like, ooh, we're different. And it wasn't the kind of thing where I couldn't eat birthday cake at a friend's party or something. But at home, it was all very clean because of dad's survival. And he is still alive. He's in his mid-80s. We're we're delighted about. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Yeah. Whether it was the food or something else. Right, right, right. But. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. But I'm just thinking about how that kind of set you up to interact with food in a really specific way from the get-go, you know? And I think I've talked on the newsletter about, you know, my daughter's medical experiences, and we spent a lot of time with her on a really strict fat-free diet. And it was also necessary to save her life at that point in time. And because I was the adult in the situation, I was able to look at it and say, it's a no-brainer to do this, to save her life right now. Also, what are the broader implications of this? How is this going to impact her long-term relationship with food? What is it doing to us? That sort of toll. And I just think like that part of the conversation so often gets missed when we're thinking about food as medicine, food as this necessary thing for a health condition. It may be that there's a food restriction that's necessary for a health condition, but that doesn't mean it doesn't bring along all this other stuff. We're given this message of like, well, but if it's what you have to do, then you have to just be all in on it and you don't get to have feelings about it being a hard way to live. So what was your sort of turning point if there was one? I mean, I understand you sort of recovered from the first round that happened when you were a teenager. And then this later round related to the Lyme disease What was your kind of turning point there in terms of the recovery you're working on now? Well, there probably wouldn't have been one because I really thought I had it nailed, you know, like gotten all the bad foods out of my diet and I was eating as healthy as anyone could and, you know, all that kind of righteousness that comes with the territory. But during the pandemic, I was out running and a friend of mine who is in healthcare saw me and emailed shortly after and said she was concerned because I looked like I was emaciated and not doing well, which was a shock to me. I was, it hadn't occurred to me that all of my healthy stuff was leading actually down a really dangerous path. 
So it was having a fellow healthcare person say that she was concerned that really got me to go for an assessment and plus the concern of my husband and other people in my world. I was referred to residential treatment, but I was in denial that that was really necessary, but then got on board with a really amazing all virtual recovery team. And I've been doing that, you know, for most of the pandemic, all by telehealth. Wow. Yeah. I continue to just see how sick I was where I had no clue. I really thought I was doing everything perfectly. Yeah. I mean, the eating disorder can be so loud and very good at talking you into certain thought patterns. So in terms of both your earlier struggles and what you've been working through recently, are your extended family members, the ones who are so entrenched in this world, are they aware of what you've been going through? So I, I came out to most of my family and extended family pretty soon after I was engaged in recovery, partly because I just needed them to know that I was kind of hopping off the train or exiting the cult or <laughs> changing the narrative or whatever metaphor you want to use. I It really felt kind of naughty and impossible to think of another way of living at first, but I did call them and... I think I was looking for some sort of acknowledgement of like, oh, yeah, I could see how all this restriction could have led down that path. And I'm really mm-hmm. sorry that happened for you. But I mean, there's just such a, I don't know if it's blindness or just assumption that it's still really the best way to live and eat. And it's mm. just your own sort of personal failing if you take it to this unhealthy place or it was still very much my fault that it happened that way. And no one has really changed their beliefs. And even just this couple of weeks ago, um, we were out there visiting and there was still a lot of talk about clean eating and weighing yourself. And, you know, we don't eat these bad animal products and stuff. So coming out was important for me, but it also hasn't really changed much. I still feel really self-conscious doing things differently. Right, right. In the family. That is frustrating. Of course, we can never control other people's reactions, but Mm -hmm. still kind of a letdown that they couldn't say like, (laughs) wow, we're really sorry this happened and we're willing to look at the broader implications of this. Well, I think it would throw into question everything that is held as truth. It is a lot easier to see things in a very black and white binary way. And so I think I kind of throw a wrench in that whole understanding of the world, that whole dogma, because it didn't work for me or it worked so well that it just went bad. Right. They don't know what to do with you. You're not the story they want to tell. You're not the story they're telling, you know, but you can't be the only person who has shared this with them. Like, given what we know about the way these kinds of eating programs contribute to disordered eating and eating disorders. It's fascinating to me how often I see big diet brands sort of given this, like, like, hey, look, what what about this? What are we concerned about this? And the response is this kind of like total stonewall thing that's like, well, that's not what we're doing. We don't do that. We don't want people to get eating disorders. We're doing something else, even though the evidence clearly shows that what they're doing is contributing to eating disorders. Yeah. And the messaging around it all, as you've touched on before, is very 
slippery. It's it's a lifestyle. It's not a diet. It's just how we eat always with all these rules that are just sort of baked in. So yeah, it does feel a lot like being gas lit because there really is no problem there. I'm the problem. Okay, Freelist, this is where we leave you. There is some really great stuff in the second half of this conversation. We came up with several strategies that Serena can use to navigate all the diet talk at her family gatherings, how she can get more support, how she can center her own needs, how she can get fed, some really useful things. And I think it would be useful for anyone who has to deal with relatives who are very diety in this kind of context. So to get the rest of the conversation, you will need to become a paid Burnt Toast subscriber. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.